Really glad to be with you today and to be able to explore the things that we're going to. Uh, I feel like um, every time that we hear this song, Come, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, I, I need to explain a phrase that's in there for people who are especially not familiar with New Hope or new to New Hope. You might be wondering if you've sung that song before, what that word Ebenezer is about. Like, am I celebrating Ebenezer Scrooge? What's going on there? So the word Ebenezer is a Hebrew term, and it's Ebenezer, and it's, it's talking about a monument stone. A monument, it, it's actually from the Old Testament when people piled rocks as a remembrance of what God did for them. So when they're saying, here I raise my Ebenezer, they're saying, here I raise my monument stone to what God's done in my life. I identify with that phrase, but I also identify with that phrase, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. How many of us could identify with that, right? It's just uh, that constant tugging, things in this world trying to pull us away from God, and we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So I really identify with what the author of that song is writing a couple hundred years ago when he wrote that, because it was real then, and it's just as real now. With that in mind, I want to root us in the things that God did commit to us and God did promise to us by working on another hard question with you this morning. The question that we're working on today is regarding the rapture, and many individuals who are outside the church or new to church are not real familiar with what's going on there, and I find many people in the church are not sure of how all the pieces fit together and what is that thing, and so uh, the question came, how do I understand the rapture? Uh, More specifically, is that thing even real? And for people who are not familiar with the Bible, that's kind of a question they would have on their mind. Is that real? How do I put the pieces together to make sense of that? I'm going to invite you this morning to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that's where we're going to kind of hang out this morning and, and look at this passage. And then after that, once we wrap this up, we have a really exciting piece of information to share with you this morning. So that's the reason actually Michael did worship a little bit shorter this morning to allow some time. We'll play a little video for you of an opportunity that we have. One of the elders is going to join me on the platform, and that'll take about eight minutes of your time. But before we do any of that, we're going to pray together and ask God to walk with us through the studying of His Word this morning. Would you join me in that? Father, we come before you in um, hearts that are desirous of knowing you better, knowing who we are before you better, and and really a, a need to know how you want us to understand some of these things that you call a mystery in your word. Not that it's a mystery to you, but it's truly a mystery to us. And we want to understand this. We want to know how to speak into the lives of people whom we know especially people who are far from you. Father, that you would use us to be an instrument to draw people into a relationship with you. That would just be a high reward for us to be able to do that. So God, I ask that you would use what we're about to study this morning and the way that we come together in community, whether we're doing it virtually or we're in person here, that you would use this to equip us, encourage us, strengthen us, comfort us, Father. But at the same time, we would ask that you would equip us. We ask that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, if you're looking for a happy Sunday at New Hope, you landed on a good day. I'm here to encourage you this morning, and I hope to strengthen you. I hope by the end of this time when you've looked at this, you would say, yeah, that makes sense to me. I get that. This summer, we've been hitting some hard questions. 
And the series of hard questions has carried us through to this point. Uh, probably a couple more weeks left in the hard questions. This one of the rapture comes up, and I recognize we didn't get to all the hard questions that came in. And so, um, with the E2E series that's starting October 10th, you'll find that some of the questions that came in, maybe some that you sent in didn't get answered, you'll find those being addressed in the E2E series. If you're new here, here's what's going on. On October 10th, we're starting a new series called Eternity to Eternity, thus E2E. And we're going to start in the book of Genesis, and we're going to go all the way through to the book of Revelation. And it's going to take like 15 years, okay? <laughs> and then Jesus comes. So we'll, we'll be in it as long as we need to. That's the way to address it. It's going to be an in-depth survey, overview of what God's communicating in His books um, throughout Genesis all the way to Revelation. That's, that's the goal that we're headed towards at this point. Today, though, we're addressing the hard questions. How do I understand the rapture, that question? Is that thing even real? What is that? Well, I recognize the issue of the rapture has caused a lot of division in churches over the years, and it produces a lot of layers of questions for individuals. For Christians, it produces a lot of questions, let alone people who are not Christ followers, and they can't make any sense of it. And so people find themselves in that place where they're not even sure how to defend it if they're supposed to. You may arrive at a point this morning that you don't necessarily agree on every detail that I surface with you, and that's okay. These are not issues to divide over. We have reason to celebrate this morning. We celebrate that we have a Savior that has provided a way of escape from the wrath to come. That's the reason we gather together to examine God's Word. So we want to make sure we keep our eyes on the big picture. Now, the concept of the rapture conjures all kinds of thoughts in our minds. For children, it produces anxiety. I can remember that as a child. I was talking with one of my daughters earlier this week, and she clearly remembers it producing anxiety in her life. I specifically can remember as an adolescent coming home from school one day, when I came into the kitchen, my mom had a pot of water on the stove, and that water was boiling. But my mom wasn't in the house. And I went from room to room to room calling out, and immediately fear kicks in, like, what happened? Why is water on the stove boiling and there's nobody here? So I ran out to the front yard, nobody's in the streets, there's a dog barking, there's no cars going by, and then I go into panic mode, my heart's really pumping, what's going on? Well, the week previous, the pastor had been teaching on the rapture, right? And so you know, my elevation of blood pressure is going way up. Well, I found my mom out in the garden. And she had forgotten that she put water on the stove to boil. That's my mom. She did that kind of thing. And it just kind of put that place of anxiety right there in the forefront while I explained that to my daughter. And she said, you mean other people feel that too, Dad? Yep, other people feel that too. So if you've had anxiousness around this issue, know that you're not alone. For Christians in the midst of social circles... When the issue of the rapture comes up, if it does, Christians can easily find within their social circle uh, thoughts of derision, um, angst, individuals who will mock and make fun, like, you believe that? So those kind of things cause people to even back away from wanting to understand it. Well, what does the Bible actually teach about the rapture? And like I said, if you're new to church, this may be completely new to you, a new piece of information. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard this. Let me start here. My view is a, a pre-tribulationist view of the rapture. You'll hear that come out this morning. 
However, I have friends who are post-tribulationists and mid-tribulationists and pre-wrath tribulationists of, of the rapture. So there's people that land on a lot of different gamuts of the spectrum. I, I remember Emerson Egrich at Trinity said he was a, a pan-tribulationist, meaning it will all pan out in the end, right? <laughs> so for us to have to decide all the specific details of it, we can only go on what God gives us information on. In a lot of arenas, the word rapture produces derision. What do you do with this information? Well, you find that the word rapture doesn't actually even appear in the Bible. It's actually a Latin word. And that Latin word actually means a carrying off, something that's been removed or carried away. But the larger concept of the rapture is all over in the New Testament. So let's just begin with the basics. This, this taking away is a future event in which God gathers together all the living believers and those who died in Christ, and He brings them together in order to pour out His judgment upon the earth, removing the believers from that environment before the tribulation period happens. That's why I would say I'm a pre-tribulationist. Now, you need to know, if you've not been very clear on this before, that the rapture is a separate event from the second coming. When you think of the second coming of Jesus, those are two different events. Scripture speaks very clearly about the Lord coming, and we will meet Him in the air. That's the rapture. But the second coming of Jesus is when He actually comes to the earth, puts His feet on the earth, produces massive earthquakes, mega seismos, according to what the Bible says. But those are two completely different events, not the same. You're going to find that the rapture is primarily described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. That's why I asked you to go there this morning. So we're going to start putting some of those verses on the screen for you. Let me just summarize it for you this way, and then we'll dive down into the detail. What we understand is that God will resurrect all believers who have died, and He's going to give them a perfect glorified body and remove from the earth along with all living believers who will also be given glorified bodies. And the Bible says it happens instantaneously. That's what we're going to dive into this morning. So let's start with Scripture. Look with me on the screen at 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive and who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, the coming rapture that's going to happen that Paul's talking about here is not the first time these kind of events have happened according to what the Bible lists. This catching up or God taking people into His presence is not new. In 2 Kings chapter 2, you find that Elijah was walking with Elisha, and we're told that he was caught up into the clouds right in front of Elisha's eyes into what Scripture calls chariots of fire. You move forward to Acts, and you find in Acts chapter 8 that Philip was caught up from this planet, caught up in a way, and then reappeared in another place on the planet, geographically removed by God. We also find in 2 Corinthians 12 that Paul says that same thing happened to him, that he was caught up. And he said, I'm not even sure how it happened, whether in the body or out of the body, I just know what happened. Look with me on the screen at this, 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. 
Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Also in the book of Revelation, you find during the tribulation period, meaning those seven really terrible years on planet Earth, before the second coming, that God sends two witnesses, two individuals who represent Him powerfully. But when their time is complete, God snatches them away or calls them up. Look with me on the screen at this one, Revelation eleven twelve. Then they, meaning the witnesses, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. And the one that's probably most familiar to us is Acts chapter 1, with Jesus' own ascension. Now, we wouldn't necessarily think of that as a rapture, but we would think of it in terms of Him going up from this planet. So Scripture describes it this way, Acts chapter 1, verse 9. And when He, meaning Jesus, had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. Now, if you study the Old Testament, you're going to find that the doctrine of the rapture is not taught. It's a mystery, and that's why Paul calls this information that you're looking at a mystery. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, I tell you, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." So the rapture involves an instantaneous transformation of your body in which God intends to fit you for eternity. As I age, I'm looking more and more forward to that moment in time. How about you? Now, when I was 22, I was totally good with what God had given me. Like, bring it. I'll take on anything. But at this age, I'm thinking, I'm looking forward to that moment. I'm looking forward to a glorified, perfect fit for heaven body. So let's go back to this phrase that Paul used when he said, listen, I tell you a mystery so that we understand this. Look with me on the screen. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning we will not all be buried in the ground, but we will all be changed. Now, God's intent, His design for us having this information, this knowledge of this great mystery is intended to be a comforting doctrine. That's why he wrote this. He wants us to speak of it. He wants us to study it and understand it and to focus on it as a source of help in the midst of a crumbling, decaying, temporary world. I know, like you, I'm watching the newsreels this last week and watching what happened in Afghanistan and realizing this world is not going to hold together a whole lot longer if things keep going this way. You have that sense of despair when you see families that have lost family members. It's such a meaningless act. And I don't just mean our 13 service members that are from our American military, but also the hundreds of Afghanistan individuals who lost family members. Just because somebody wanted to advance their agenda, they kill hundreds of people. And you look at the event and say, what in the world is going around and we want to hear God's Word on this, and God's Word says, focus on this. This is a source of hope in the midst of a temporary and crumbling world that's decaying and filled with sin. So we find Paul writing this in verse 18, encourage each other with these words. These individuals in the first century needed to be encouraged. They were living in a crumbling, decaying world. So let's go to the source of the encouragement. Let's see why these things were written down. 
the reason even any of this is a reality, any of these things we're talking about with Jesus' second coming or the rapture is only because of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you agree with that. It's the only reason we can even discuss this. It's the only reason we can look forward with hope. So what did Jesus say on this issue? Look with me on the screen at John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And here's what I want you to bear down on. And receive you. And receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'm going to ask you this morning to look at that verse through a new lens. We're going to break down that verse in just a minute, but that phrase, receive you, is part of the Greek language that's in your notes this morning. If you downloaded them or you picked up a hard copy and you see this Greek word on the screen, paralambano, to receive something means you're going to bring it in and not just hang out with it and associate it with it, but it's becoming part of your life. So envision yourself having been given a puppy or you bought a puppy. And someone brings it to you, not just with the intent of you petting it, but it actually becomes part of your world. You're going to take it home. That's becoming part of your life. Paralambano is kind of capturing that thought, to take something to yourself, and it's part of who you are at that point. Now, Jesus has used that term right there when he says, receive you to myself. Let's take that big scope, that broad encouragement that Jesus just gave, and compare it with Paul writing to the Thessalonican church and develop that. Look with me on the screen now at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, and this is what the rapture is based in. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, did you notice Paul's writing this as if it could happen in his lifetime? He's writing it from the position that it could happen any moment. That's the way the early church was living at that period of time, believing that the return of Jesus could be at any day. And so they're living with this very real expectation of the return of Jesus in their lifetime. That's the mindset behind this passage when Paul breaks in and says, wait, time out. We don't want you to be uninformed, Thessalonians. We don't want you to be uninformed, Corinthians. We don't want you to be misinformed, Church of Jesus Christ. Why would he be phrasing that this way? We don't want you to be uninformed. Because if you lived in the first century, you'd be asking that kind of a question, knowing that Jesus is coming, and you're thinking, when this event happens, and the Lord's going to return, and we're going to be with him in his presence, what happens to my brothers and sisters in Christ who died before the return of Christ? Are they going to miss out on that great event? 
And you can see their mindset in verse 13 because of the premise that Paul argues this from. Look with me at verse 13 again. We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So they're worried about what happens to Christ followers who died. Will they miss the great event of the return of Jesus? And they're actually grieved by the thought that some of those they love will miss the event. Put yourself in that setting. Nero's been Caesar. Domitian is, is Caesar. And they're killing Christians. People they know are being persecuted. They're starving. And they're dying for the name of Jesus. And rightfully so, individuals would look at this and say, well, he's coming back again. I'm, I'm afraid that my friend is going to miss out on the second coming of Christ. And Paul says, you don't have to grieve as the rest who have no hope. Don't grieve like those people, those ones who have no hope. No hope of what? No hope of seeing Jesus. No hope of a huge reunion, which brings me to the thought, who in your mind right now is somebody that pops in your mind that you're looking forward to being reunited with in eternity one day? I bet at the moment I asked that, it popped in your mind. It wouldn't take you very long to come up with a list. One individual came after me, to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, I got a list that's huge. And I said, well, the older you get, because he was in his 70s, the bigger the list gets, right? The, the list grows and grows. I'm looking forward to seeing my parents. I'm looking forward to seeing those who built into my life, that I know that we're in relationship with Jesus. How about you? Who is that reunion going to be with? Because it's going to be massive. So Paul writes to give clarity on this issue, and he makes it very emphatic when he says in verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And he says that because remember at this time, the early church did not have the full written revelation of the New Testament. You hold something in your hands right now that they did not have. They didn't have the full written word. It hadn't been all recorded at that point. This is very early in the church, and these questions had not yet been answered. So Paul answers their con confusion with this really clear description of a single event, my conviction, the next event in God's prophetic calendar, the next thing that will happen. By my understanding of God's timeline, the rapture of the church is the next thing that will happen. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Caught up. Look at the notes, and you'll see this Greek word. It's going to go on the screen, this word harpazo. And, and this is something that happens very swiftly. So when they use the word caught up, this word harpazo pops up because it's catching away, a plucking when I think of this, immediately this week when I was watching my wife work out in the garden, we have a vegetable garden out in the back. She, she likes to go out and work in the garden, but part of gardening, as you know, is taking care of weeds. And I'm watching Lori reach into the garden area, and she's grabbing a hold of weeds and popping them out of the ground. An irresistible force is the concept behind harpazo. It's taken violently and swiftly. It's the sudden movement of an irresistible force that's pulling something away. Another individual came to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, I've heard it described before, like the force of a magnet pulling steel, that, that, that steel can't resist the power or the pull of that magnet pulling it away. 
The scripture says it happens very, very quickly. So quickly, so it's swift and it's violent and it's a snatching away. So according to the Bible, there's going to be this moment that's faster than an eye blink when those who are in Jesus are caught up by an irresistible force. And that's what this text is about, that event. And just let me emphasize one more time, this is not talking about the second coming. The rapture is a separate event. Clearly, the second coming is Jesus coming to earth, but the rapture is going to meet him in the air. Now, let's assemble some of these pieces that we've just talked about so far. This will be redundant, but bear with me. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4 one more time. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. You need to know that the rapture that's being described there doesn't rest on speculation. And it's not some bizarre misunderstanding of the Bible. This foundation of truth rests on fact. And Paul presents three facts that I want you to see. You'll carry this with you the rest of your life. You'll be able to tell other people. I, I'm not questioning whether or not the rapture is real. I can look at this and say, there's fact there now. So if you have your Bible, and maybe you have your Bible open, you don't mind circling in it, you might want to write these things down, circle them. Maybe you've got your phone, put it down. You want to see these three facts that Paul's bringing out here. First of all, he says it's based on the death of Christ, a historical fact. Look with me on the screen, 1 Thessalonians 4.14. For if we believe that Jesus died. Now, if is not suggesting doubt. Rather, he's talking about the logical sequence of believing. You could even put in there the word, since we believe that Jesus died. He's establishing a logical procession here. Paul's about to declare a future reality, a mystery something no one knows anything about. And even those of us who do know about it today, we would look at it and say, it's still a mystery. It boggles my mind. So he begins by reminding us of what Jesus did to make that reality possible. Look with me on the screen one more time. Verse 14, for if, or I would say, put in there in parentheses, the word since we believe that Jesus died. Because of his death, because he bore our sins, because he became sin for us, and he died in our place, Jesus therefore took the wrath of God upon himself. And because he took the wrath of God upon himself, he perfectly paid the sacrifice for sin. Meaning this, the physical death that you and I would ultimately face has lost its sting. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, there's no fear in death. There's no fear for you because of Jesus, death has been changed to sleep, 
Say amen if you agree with that. I'm going to wear you out on that this morning. Because of Jesus, death that produces fear in everyone has been changed to sleep. Understand it this way. Sleep in the Bible is a metaphor. A metaphor in which the whole concept of death is literally transformed. For that reason, you find Paul concluding 1 Corinthians 15 this way. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus. Tremendous statement. And he's making that statement because he's just addressed the issue of those who are in Jesus dying in Jesus. And he concludes it by saying, thanks be to God. He gave us the victory in Jesus. We don't have to fear death anymore. Victory over death, our future resurrection. If you want to think of the rapture that way, think of it as a resurrection. Your future resurrection or the rapture of the church is built on the death of Christ. That he died our death in our place, punished for our sins, means he turned death into sleep. And so Paul can say he took the sting out of death. So death for us, it's merely like going to sleep. In this sense, sleep of the body. When you lay down tonight to sleep, are you going to be afraid of sleep? No, you welcome sleep because it refreshes your body. Physically, it restores you. The metaphor for death that is referred to as sleep in the Bible is speaking of death for a believer in Jesus Christ that way, that you don't need to fear it. It's the physical sleeping of your body, but your spirit is immediately in the presence of Jesus. Your spirit is present with the Lord, so Scripture says your body may go to sleep, your body may die, but you're immediately in the presence of God. So God is going to treat those who died trusting Jesus in the same way he treated Jesus, by raising them to new life. And that's true both for those who died in Christ and those who are alive at the return. Now, it's based on the death of Christ. Now, secondly, we're going to see that it's based on the resurrection of Christ. Look with me again at the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4.14, for if or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. If you're new to church, you want to understand Easter this way. The resurrection, the reason we celebrate Easter the way we do, the resurrection of Jesus is proof of God's acceptance of the sacrifice that Jesus made. That he died for you is received by God as enough, it's complete, and therefore God raised him from the dead. And that's the reason we celebrate because Jesus indeed destroyed death and he destroyed sin and he paid for sin for us, thus he destroyed it all. And that God was pleased with it is evidenced in the resurrection. So think of it this way. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval. Now let's keep going because Paul's using those two facts and he links it now. Hear this, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, and that's the link. He's linking the cross, he's linking the resurrection, and he's saying, if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus died, and you believe that God raised him to life again, even so, we have to move on to what happens next in God's calendar. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And that's what the first century church wanted to know. 
What's going to happen to those people? What's going to happen to my friends? What's going to happen to my family members who died before the king returns to this planet? That's what we want to know. What's going to happen to us? Well, those individuals who died, their soul departs to be with the Lord, and they possess eternal life. But what about their body? How do we understand that? He says it this way, 14, even so, God will bring with them those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What an astounding promise, because we're being told that the spirit, the soul of those saints are coming back with Jesus. How do I put these pieces together? Well, here's the promise of your resurrection. Here's the promise of the resurrection that you're going to experience. God raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise all who are in Jesus, even those who have died. Look with me on the screen. 1 Corinthians 6.14, now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through His power. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. That their bodies are in the grave doesn't eliminate them from this great event. So, verse 14 again, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So, when God sends Jesus back and Jesus comes and gathers the believers, God will bring all of them back to heaven. And that's what I understand Jesus was pointing to in John chapter 14. I asked you to hang on to that verse. Look with me on the screen. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and paralambano you to me. I will receive you to myself. There's a moment coming when Jesus will take you to where he is, into the Father's house, to a place made for you, ready for each of us. And my belief is that that place that he speaks of is designed to exacting specifications, designed exactly for you as an individual, customized to who you are. And I anticipate that this detail is absolutely extraordinary. I arrive at that conclusion. I haven't found a whole lot of theologians who back it up on this, but this is my interpretation of the way I look at it. God took six days to create this entire planet and all life on it. He spent 2,000 years working on a place for you. How fantastic will that place be? How much design and detail, and it's not ready for you apparently yet because we're not gone yet, but he says, I'm making that place for you. Now, you living in the first century, put yourself in that mindset of the Thessalonians or the Corinthians, and you've just heard this information from Paul. You might be tempted to say, Paul, where are you getting this from? Is this just a bad dream you had? What's going on here? How do you know these things? And Paul understands that people think that way, and that comes to the third and final base of this, this last leg. Look with me on the screen, chapter 4, verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this gathering, this rapture of believers is centered directly in information from Jesus. 
Now you would step back and say, well, where did Jesus speak about this? I don't find this kind of detail. Where does this come from? Is Paul referring to John 14? Well, it appears to be a reference to the rapture, but it's not specific enough to say that. Or is this one of those passages like what John wrote of? And John closed out the book of John by saying, I suppose if all the things that Jesus did were written down, that all the books in all the world wouldn't contain them? Well, there's things that Jesus said and did that we don't have information on. Is that what he's referring to? Those are probably possibilities. But I'm of the mind that this was stuff that was revealed directly to Paul because in 1 Corinthians, he calls it a mystery, meaning this, until the later part of the first century, no one knew this. They didn't study it in the Old Testament because it wasn't there. No one knew this information. People living in the first century had never heard this detail, and Paul says it's a mystery, and a mystery in the Bible is something that has been hidden but is now revealed, something hidden but now revealed. God has chosen to hide something, but He revealed it at this moment in time. Now, to be sure, the Christians knew in Thessalonica of the return of Christ. They knew there was a time when Jesus would return to the earth because He said, I'm going to build a place for you, and I'm going to come back and receive you to Myself. And they knew about the final judgment, but they didn't know about the rapture because there's nothing about the rapture in the Old Testament, and Jesus didn't speak to it specifically. So Paul's reasoning is this, this revelation of a mystery, it's built on the fact of Jesus' death. It's built on the fact of Jesus' resurrection, and it's built on the fact that these are the words of Jesus, and that is the strongest of foundations. Would you not agree? It's the strong foundation, the death the resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing that a Christian clings to stronger. And then the words of Jesus. And that's why Paul builds this case this way. So let me bring this to a conclusion for you. Verse 15 says, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That event could have happened in Paul's lifetime. There's nothing preventing it. It could have happened. That's why he writes the way that he does. It could have happened 50 years ago. It could happen tonight. We don't know. We don't know because God hasn't revealed it. It could happen today. There's nothing preventing it. It's a signless event. But it will be so sudden and so catastrophic that all the world will be very aware. So sum it up this way, every one of us ought to live as though Jesus could come at any moment. If you agree with that, say amen. amen. Why don't we live that way? Why can't we think that way? And I'm including myself in that. Every one of us should be living as though he could come at any moment. That's how the first century church lived. They lived in light of this promise. Do you anticipate his return? Are, are you thinking, even so, come Lord Jesus? When I watch the faces of those 19, 20, 22-year-old young men and women pop up on my screen this week who'd been blown up, and I knew the grieving that their family was going through, and I'm looking at the crumbling and the decaying, my thought was, even so, come Lord Jesus, will you put an end to this? 
Take us out of this mess. Just stop this world trauma. For whatever reason, he continues to allow it. He continues for millennia for these things to unfold until the time that he chooses. I find it very compelling that they lived in light that he could come at any moment. And yet I find our generation not so much, and here's my fear. Whatever happened the week before the issues in Afghanistan, that was the highlight of the newsreels, and everybody was talking about it. And now Afghanistan this week, and everybody's talking about what's going to happen next week, or the week after, or the week after. We get so preoccupied with the things going on around us, we move on very, very quickly, and we get so consumed with our agenda that we lose perspective. I don't know if Jesus is going to come in my lifetime. He could kick the can down the road 500 years for all I know. May choose to do that. It doesn't feel like it, but every generation has said that since the time of Paul living. So he could do that. He may come in my lifetime, but here's how thinking that he could come today affects me. It has a holy effect on me. It has a holy effect because it changes my perspective about what's important and what's not important. Am I focusing on the temporary or on what's permanent? Who are the people in your life that don't know Jesus that need to know that they can be forgiven of their sins? How are you investing in those individuals? Let me wrap it up this way. Look with me on the screen. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The grandeur of this event is unmeasured and unparalleled. The Lord Jesus himself is going to descend from heaven. And it's not angels, although they'll accompany him. It's not a host of angels. It's Jesus coming personally for you. And we're told there's a shout going on here. And the Greek word that's used is the word kalusma. And if you've been in the military, you're a veteran, you have any experience with somebody walking in a room who's of higher rank than you, you know what it is to stand at attention if you've been at ease. Kalusma is a military term that's borrowed and carried over into the Bible in which a commanding officer walks into the presence of his soldiers who are at ease. And that shout, Kalusma, attention! And everybody pops to order. So we're told there's a shout first, and then we're told there's a sound of a trumpet. And this trumpet is not a judgment trumpet. There's judgment trumpets all over in Revelation. This is an assembly trumpet. You find the trumpets being used throughout Scripture for calling people to war, for calling an assembly of people, for calling people to come and make a charge. But in this case, God gathering. It's a call to the dead to rise. If you've read the story of Lazarus and Jesus resurrecting him from the grave, you know that it specifically says that Jesus shouted out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. That's what we're seeing here being captured by Paul. 
those individuals being called out and immediately at that moment, all the redeemed souls in heaven, all those spirits that are there instantly joined with new bodies, some from the grave, some come from the sea, and I'm picturing it this way, microbes of dust particles scattered throughout time and geography all over this planet, reunited to form a physical body and transform to perfection, fit exactly for eternity, for the place that Jesus made for us to live in. How astounding is that thought? So here's God's plan in detail. The dead in Christ will rise first. I love that statement. I love the fact that they're dead and they're still in Jesus. The dead in Christ, even though they're physically dead, asleep in the grave, if you will, they're still in Jesus. How do we know that? Because Romans chapter 8 says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God right? Nothing, not even death. You sound like you don't believe it. You should say amen on that one. <laughs> Nothing will separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul's just putting the stamp on this. Okay, so what about us? What about us who are alive right now? 11.57 in the morning, and we're alive, and maybe Jesus comes back today. What about those of us who remain, those of us who are alive and remain? It says that we are swiftly drawn into his presence. Harpazo, the living on earth who are in Jesus, transformed in a flash. How do I understand that? You understand it this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. That word moment, and I never end sermons with a Greek word, but I'm going to do it today. That word moment, atomos. Look at it. Read the definition. What does it sound like? Adam. We get the English word Adam from this word that's being used here in the Greek language in the Bible. How fast is that? How fast does light flash on the eye? How fast does the atom move? We're talking about a nanosecond changed instantly by the sudden movement of an irresistible force plucking and snatching away. Violently, quickly, swiftly pulling you into the presence of God. And so Paul ends it this way. And so we shall always be with the Lord. It's an amazing thought. It's a phenomenal thought. There's a great reunion coming, New Hope. You're going to be in perfect final form. So he's going to gather his own and take us to the place that he's prepared for us. No wonder Paul concluded it by saying, comfort one another with these words. Amen? Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray with you that this would translate into activity in your life this week, that you would take these things seriously because God did not record them if he didn't want us to know it, and that it would translate into your actions this week. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you, first of all, for allowing us to hear your word, that we still have freedom in a nation in which the Bible can be easily read. Thank you for that privilege and for being able to study your word. And your spirit is always at work, and so you compel us through your word. 
Father, what I pray for us is that we would take these things so seriously that we would use them in our life this week, that perhaps even tomorrow, that we might wake up with the first thought in our mind, maybe it's today. Father, we, we fight against that prone to wander issue, and we willingly admit that. So we ask that you would help us to fight against that through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, that we would keep our focus on the big picture. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name and all God's people said, amen.